Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Amen. Grab a seat, everybody. How are we this morning? Today... It's week four of our series in Leviticus, and we have two parts to this series. Today's the end of part one. We're going to take a two-week break and then pick it back up with another three-week part two that leads us into Easter. And we've walked through some different lenses of Leviticus, because ultimately Leviticus is a band-aid book, if you want to phrase it as such. And what I mean by that is Leviticus is a book about God that kind of tells his people how to live with God under not-so-perfect conditions. And so we looked at different lenses of Leviticus to remind us what it's about. And and the first thing, when you see the first verse in the chapter 1 of the book, you see Leviticus is about God reclaiming the presence of his people. Because God's meant to dwell with his people, but he's perfect and we're not. And and they couldn't even get off of the mountain where he gave them the law before they messed up. And so he said, this book, this book is here so that under these not ideal situation and circumstances, I can be with you again. And he outlines chapter after chapter of ways that an imperfect people in the Old Testament could walk with, be with, follow a perfect God. And so it's a band-aid book because it points us to the to how we live with God now, even though the standards aren't ideal. And ultimately, all of it's fulfilled in Jesus. And so we've looked at a couple different lenses through which to look at it. One, the presence of God with the people of God. Uh, Two, the worship of God was last week, how we can worship a God that is better than us, but that's why we worship him. We looked at the lens of holiness, meaning that everything God does is perfect and how that impacts how we read the book and the standards that he implores. And today we get to Leviticus 19, and we're going to walk through some texts today, like 10 verses together. And in Leviticus 19, we see another lens, another band-aid, because who they are isn't the ideal that God had established for them, because people are broken people. And we see kind of this idea that, that the community of God, picked out by God himself, should have been all these things, but they weren't. They should have been perfect and loving and generous, but they weren't because people are ultimately broken. And so you get kind of this idea, we're going to pull as we get into it from uh, Deuteronomy a little bit. Deuteronomy, if, if you don't know, is the retelling of the law. So Leviticus is part of the law, and then you fast forward two books, and they wander in the desert for 40 years. 40 years, a generation passes away, and Moses is about to lead them with Joshua into the promised land, and God says, these people need to hear my law again to know who I am. And so he gets up on a rock, and he says, let me tell you what we told you in Leviticus. And one of the chapters in Deuteronomy that mirrors our chapter in Leviticus today goes like this. In chapter 15, he gets up there and he says, However, there should not be any poor people among you, for the Lord will surely bless you in the land that he's giving you as an inheritance. So God says, this is is my people, and I've established how they're supposed to live, and I am perfectly good and righteous and just, and I've provided, and if I'm good at providing, there will be no provision that's not meant. And so he says at the beginning of Deuteronomy, when he's telling the law, you're my people, and there will be no poor people. But again, he's setting the standard for the ideal that we don't live in now because people are broken. So a couple verses later, in verse 7, that same chapter, he says, if there is a poor person with you, he says, take care of them like your brother. 
And then he fast forwards to verse 10. He said, for the poor will never cease to be with you in the land. Therefore, I command you saying, you'll freely, you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy, to your poor in the land. We have this progression from there shouldn't be any poor ever because I am good and I am God, but there will be, but there always will be. It's a band-aid book that points us to God's ultimate good. Jesus even says it when he walks in Matthew 26. He says to the poor, you're always going to have with you. He's not saying don't do anything about it. He's simply acknowledging that the system we live in isn't the one that God set up and established for us, but God meets us in the middle of it. And you know what happens when we're met in the middle of those in-between spaces? That's where we find this thing called compassion. And so Leviticus 19 is all about the compassion of God for the people of God that need it because we live in a broken system. And so what we're going to do today is walk through Leviticus 19 a little bit, verses 9 through verse 18, and talk about the system of compassion that God set up because it's a Band-Aid book <laughs> that's written to close some gaps on some things because we're not living in God's ideal anymore. And that's hard. I remember one of the first things I did when I got here and I was doing the middle school thing, I started this thing called Mission Dallas. It was a week long, I think, it might just have been three days, but it was middle school kids, so it felt like a week long um, mission experience. And we partnered with, I think, like 20 or 25 different mission organizations all over Dallas. And my goal that week, literally my goal that week, was to take these however many 60 or 70 middle school kids and show them a side of the world they hadn't seen before. Because by God's grace, they knew Flower Mound, they knew Double Oak, and they knew Highland Village. And that is a beautiful thing, but a bad day is not if you have to get the tall Frappuccino and not the Grande. You know what I'm talking about? And so my goal was to say, hey guys, let's look and see that you, you are living in grace that you don't know that you're living in yet. And so we went all over and did all these things and worked at food banks and, and, and worked at Salvation Armies and worked at some homeless shelters. And my favorite night was Tuesday night. It was taco night, because obviously. And they made all the food. But that was a poverty simulation night. And so what we did, unbeknownst to them, is we separated the kids into groups based on how wealth is distributed in America. And so then we gave food proportionally based on how many people own that percentage of the wealth. So for example, remember the first year we did it, I think there was like in the uber wealthy, the top 1%-ish, give or take, is what we called it. There was like three or four kids. And with these three or four kids, I think we gave them like 12 or 13 pounds of meat, right? And like all the avocados in Texas and all the salsa they could ever eat in seven lifetimes and everything else you could possibly put on their taco. And we said, here, eat. And then there's upper middle class and middle class and lower class and below the poverty line. And as you got down, you got less and less food. I remember the lowest of them, there was 10 or 12 kids. And I think we gave them a tortilla and like a bell pepper and said, have fun at, at dinner tonight, you know? And we just said, guys, there's a problem that exists because the world isn't perfect and it's hard. So what's our role as Christians in the middle of that? What do we do, you know? It was funny. I remember I wasn't known well yet. One of the moms says to me, when is this exercise over and we can start dinner? I said, we've started dinner. And she said, what if they don't share? I said, then we miss meals. You know? It was really interesting. I got a call from my boss that night. I think um, the idea was just to show us that there is God's standard and there is what we walk in every day. And in the middle of that is this idea of compassion. That's what Leviticus 19 is all the way about, where God meets us and what happens when we're met in the middle of the brokenness. And so my goal today, before we dive in, we're going to look at a text of scripture um, that was written to an agrarian society, and we've got we to translate that to ours. 
So I think out of that, what we see are three different things that compassion looks like that we can give to people that don't have. And so as we look through our passage, hopefully we have these broad concepts that we can give in the middle of the void of provision to show people that God is good. But before we get into that, uh, let's do what we do on Sundays at Crossroads, which is um, let's pray a little bit. We had two goals this morning. One is we want to know God. And every time we come together and every week I say our goal is to know God. And what that means is we open the scripture and we get to know the character of the God that we believe is worthy of worship. We get to know the character of the God that we ascribe holiness or goodness to. And so we always open the scriptures and look at who he is based on his description of himself and his character and his rhythms and his patterns. But two, our second goal is we know that true knowledge doesn't just end in trivia game answers. True knowledge always ends in influence because to truly know something is allowed to change you, to motivate you, to transform us. And so we want to know God this morning and we want to experience his goodness as we allow the knowledge of God to influence our day-to-day. So we're going to pray that the Holy Spirit teaches us something. I'm going to ask you to pray to yourself. I'm going to ask that you pray for me because we get to talk about gleaning today in a non-agrarian society. So it should be a really fun day, everybody. All right, let's pray. God, I'm thankful just for the graces that you've given us that so often we don't see. I'm thankful that we can get together and talk about Leviticus and see your good, compassionate, giving character. I pray today as we open your scripture that you teach us, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, I pray that you speak to us. You meet us where we're at and you teach us about your goodness this morning as we talk about compassion. If you're comfortable, I'd ask you to just say a quick prayer to yourself um, and ask the Holy Spirit to do something in your spirit this morning. I'd also ask that you pray for me, that I'm going to do a good job depicting the character of God that we see on the pages of Scripture. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. If you got a Bible, open it up to Leviticus chapter 19. If you don't, we're going to throw some verses up on the screen when we want to and how we want to. So you're at the will of us this morning. It's going to be good. We start with an understanding of what it is though. So you got to understand Leviticus, and as we've gone through it, it's just a tough book to sit down and read and apply. Because like we've said before, Leviticus is written for you, but not to you. It was written to a group of people thousands of years ago that just got out of 400 years of slavery, are camped at a mountain, about to walk around for 40 years in the desert to inherit a land without any huge cities and buildings in an agrarian society. It was written to somebody else, but it's for us. And what that means is we got to dive in and say, okay, here's some principles. Here's some principles we see that show us the character of the God that we follow. How does that translate to us here and now? And so as we dive into some concepts today. My goal isn't necessarily to give you takeaways like do these seven things. I think what we see is when people need, this chapter calls us to give a few different things, a few broad concepts of what it looks like to step in to situations that need compassion with the compassion that we find from God. And to to understand where we're at, you got to understand that in this world that we're about to read about, it was way different than ours. 
predominantly an agrarian society, right? But not just an agrarian society, an agrarian society that didn't really value anything other than men very well. And so when you read from the Old Testament text, we're going to get into more of that in in three weeks, but when you read from the Old Testament text, you got to understand who it's predominantly speaking to and about, and you got to understand where value was and where it wasn't. So for example, in our text, it comes out of the context of God giving land to the 12 tribes of Israel, all the people of Israel. And so as they got to the promised land, he said, here is your land. And he literally lists the boundaries. This is for you and your family. This is for you and your family. This is for you and your family. Because in an agrarian society, land was so much. It was stability. It was wealth. And it was support. If you didn't have that, you didn't have any of those things. Any of those things. And so it's such a huge, huge concept, land ownership. It kind of pervades this entire chapter a bit. So, for example, if, if you're a widower and you don't have any more land because your husband died, if you're a foreign person that walked into the Hebrew camp and said, I want to be one of you, and you weren't given land because you're not part of the 12 tribes, you didn't have much hope. You didn't have much stability and you had no wealth. So he's specifically going to speak to these people. One of my favorite stories of this in the Old Testament is uh, starts with a guy named Abram, Abraham. He was the father of all these people. And you see it play out really well. He didn't trust God for a little while there and tried to start a family with his uh, maid or his servant, which was customary from that time and place. God's not happy with it, but people did it. And she got pregnant and, and that caused some bitterness between Hagar, the maid, and Abraham's wife, Sarah, right? If you know the story in Genesis 17, 18, 19, 20. And so twice, twice Hagar is kicked out because of jealousy and hurt feelings, twice. In chapter 21 is the one that breaks my heart. Literally, Hagar takes her son, who's probably 12 or 13 at the time, Ishmael, takes her son, and they walk away. Abraham gives them some water, and when that water's gone, it wasn't like they went to another city. If you were a woman or a kid, and you didn't have land or family, you just kind of died. It says in chapter 21 of Genesis, I put my kid under a tree, and I went over here because I couldn't watch him starve, and I wept, is what she says. It's terribly tragic. If you didn't have land, you didn't have provisions, stability, or wealth. And so God picks up on that narrative and he stepped into that situation and and Hagar says, I serve a God who sees me even when I feel like nobody else does. And that's the nature of compassion that you are seen when you feel invisible. And it starts in verse nine, read with me. When you gather in the harvest of your land, you must not completely harvest the corner of your field. And you must not gather up the gleanings of your harvest. You must not pick your vineyard bare and you must not gather up the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You must leave them for the poor and the resident foreigner. I am the Lord your God. So he's saying there's going to be people among you that don't have land. And just because they don't have land, whether people died, whether they made bad decisions, whether, whether they just came into the land and you've adopted them as your own, if those people, when you see those people, I'm provide for them, give them provisions so that they don't starve. It was called gleaning. And so two things you couldn't do is what the law says. One, is every time you picked your crops, I don't know if you guys have ever combined crops. My family's from Iowa. I have. It's really fascinating. There's 24 row combines and you don't miss anything anymore. Everything that you gather goes in these huge bins. Back in the day, you did it by hand, novel concept. And sometimes you carried things that you dropped and it said in the Levitical law, if you drop anything, whether you meant to or not, especially if you didn't mean to, you can't pick it up again. 
Whatever you dropped is not for you anymore. That's God's provision for. So if you were super clumsy, you had a huge following, right? Right behind you. My wife would be very popular, you know? And so if you dropped anything on the ground, that wasn't, literally, it wasn't yours anymore. You didn't own it anymore, even though it was your land. And two, they said, here's the other side of that. You couldn't actually go all the way to the edges of your field. You had to round off the edges. And if you know anything about the Jewish culture, they're very specific on what is sin and what is not, what is law and what is not. So they try to define things that aren't well-defined by God. God's intent here is that you provide for the poor and needy. But they said, well, what does rounded mean? What if I gave you this much or this much? So in some Jewish writings later, they defined it as the total, the aggregate amount of cornering that you had to have unpicked was one sixteenth of all the stuff that you had. It had to add up to that, right? So whatever your land size was, all your corners had to add up to one sixteenth of your overall production area. And that's what you had to leave for the people. And so they could come whenever they wanted and take your stuff. Why? Because it wasn't your stuff anymore. God used it for other people's provisions they didn't have. Last night, um, actually this morning, we had a good day yesterday with the fam. We like adulted really well yesterday. And we're still learning how to do this with a small child, paid some bills, did some cleaning, cleaned out our pantry. Guys, we had things in there from before we got married. We cleaned out our pantry and, and threw it away. Just felt accomplished. This morning, I get up to leave in the morning, wife and kids still in bed. And I walk out to my garage, and we felt so good. And then I realized that we left our garage door up all night long, our house door completely unlocked, and our car doors wide open for some reason, all right? I told my wife this morning, uh, you know, we left everything open, and after the first service, she said, we were just gleaning. We were just leaving it for the people. I'm like, I don't think that's an application to the 21st century idea of what gleaning is. So what we have to do is ask the question, what does gleaning look like in our context? Because you don't have property or land, and it doesn't mean don't mow the edges of your lawn. That's just sloppy, you know? So what they're saying is essentially you have to provide a space to provide for people that don't have provisions. And so I think gleaning does three things when you transfer it to a 21st century world. I think, first of all, gleaning establishes shared spaces. What that means is, and this is really important, it establishes shared spaces between people of different socioeconomic levels that normally wouldn't be in the same place at the same time. Gleaning meant that what is mine is not mine anymore, and and you have just as much right to be on my stuff as I do because God said so. It's amazing. So you get mix of different kinds of people at the same place at the same time. The best example in scripture we have of gleaning is Ruth. If you know how that story goes, Ruth was a Moabite woman who married into a Jewish family. There was a famine in the land. So this one family left um, Israel and went to Moab. And there, their two sons married two Moabite women. And this woman, Naomi, was the mother of the whole tribe and her husband died. Her name actually meant pleasant and happy, ironically. And then after her husband died, both her sons died. And so she's left alone, a widower with no land in a foreign land with two people that aren't from her own tribe. So she moves back home to Israel. And she says at the end of that, it's really heartbreaking. She says at the end of that, I have nothing left. And she changes her name from Naomi, which means pleasant, to Mara, which means bitter. She says, so just call me bitter. I got nothing left, right? So if you know the story, Ruth gets up in the morning and says, well, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go find some food. And she goes to Boaz's land and starts gleaning off it. And it says she has just as much right there as the land owner did. 
because that's how we provide for our people. So the first thing I think gleaning does is it establishes shared spaces because here's the deal. I think that we gather with like-minded people. We gather with like people of our same class and or ethnicity. I think we gather with like-minded things. That's what this church does too. Most churches are, right? I think Martin Luther said the most segregated hour in America is essentially Sunday morning. And I don't think that's good, bad, or indifferent. I think there's different parts that we can talk about about it. But what I think it shows us is that we like to gather with like-minded people and this forced them to realize and to see the people that felt unseen. It forced them to interact with the plight of people that they probably would overlook. So what gleaning does is it, it makes us open up our spaces for the good of others. So it, it opens up shared spaces too. I think it invites people from the margins to share in those spaces. Like we just said, it talks about closing the socioeconomic gap and say that, hey, look, even though I own this land, you can belong here too. It forces me to invite people I wouldn't normally invite to dinner to pick food off my land. And again, that's not something I think we're very good at unless we're forced to do. And so God said, I'm gonna make you do it. And then finally, I think gleaning cultivates transformation in those spaces by confronting cycles of injustice. It allows people to have an opportunity to pull themselves out of the plight that they're in. Collect some food. Sell it if you want to. Eat it if you want to. Go to all the fields and glean all the fields if you want to. There's no limit on what you can gather from the fields if you glean. Christianity Today magazine did an article on gleaning and it said gleaning is about the dignity of work and the transformational role of practicing business to bring peace and welfare to all. So as we translate that to a 21st century application, I think fundamentally what we're called to do when we talk about compassion in Leviticus 19 is we're called to give opportunity to people that maybe we wouldn't give opportunities to. We're called to give opportunity. That's what compassion looks like. There's a construction group called Square Peg Development I read about in Seattle. And the owners are Christian. And they were growing a lot and they came to this place where they couldn't find enough workers to fulfill the needs that they had. And so they had this idea that they would not do background checks anymore on their employees. Okay, you need to say, this is not a daycare, this is a construction company, all right? There's a difference there. I'm not saying it's good for everybody to do. But they started working with ex-cons. They said, actually, they threw out a number that said $60 billion a year is wasted because people don't employ ex-cons in a lot of places. They interviewed one guy named James who worked for him and he said, quote, everyone wants to get something from you or use you. It's difficult to move from people wanting something from me to people that want something for me. The CEO of that company said, this is why we do what we do. It's not just about tithing, but using other resources to be, in, to be creative in responding to social issues. So they started talking to James about what that job has meant to him what the opportunity they gave him is meant to him. And he said, and I quote, your past isn't part of your story and it doesn't define who you are anymore. And that sounds like the gospel to me. I think gleaning is about the promise of restoration from maybe a past plight. And here's what we see when you look at gleaning. It, it means giving opportunity to others. And what you have to know, what I have to know, if I'm the one giving of the field, if I'm the land owner, then you gotta understand that gleaning oftentimes comes at a cost. And it's probably gonna be to us. But it's fundamentally what Jesus talks about when he talks about the nature of wealth. He doesn't say wealth is bad. He says that our purposes is to repurpose our possession for God's good and his glory. 
So that's the question gleaning brings up is how are we using what God gives us to give opportunities so that other might see and feel and experience the redemption that ultimately Jesus gives us. That article went on to say, gleaning declares that by God's grace and the Spirit's guidance, we're not only part of society, but we're called to be participants in its restoration, reconciliation, and renewal. Gleaning's all about giving opportunity. It's the beginning of compassion. And then two, the text goes on in verse 11. And it says, you will not steal. You must not tell lies. You must not deal falsely with your fellow citizen. You must not swear falsely in my name so that you don't profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. You must not oppress your neighbor or commit robbery against your neighbor. You must not withhold the wages of a hired person overnight until morning. So he seemingly shifts and says, okay, so one thing it's about, it's about giving opportunity. But two, then he moves into this section where he says, you know what you shouldn't do either? Do not take advantage of people when you're called to take care of people. And he gives us two examples there. One, he says, don't lie and profane my name. It's a court reference in that culture because all you had to do to put somebody in jail is have a witness that said they did something. And so they're saying, don't lie in court because a lie can ruin someone's life just because you can, just because you have power, just because you have influence, just because you have opportunity. And then he says also, if you've agreed to pay somebody that day, pay them that day. Again, in that society, you understand that if they're a day laborer, they need that money to buy food for their family that day. And to withhold it, even though you could, because they can't do anything about it, even though you could, takes advantage of others at the expense of others. And he's establishing a society that values people differently, that doesn't take advantage, but absolutely takes care of others. And you gotta understand how incredibly different that was from their history. They just got out of 400 years of slavery, like hard slavery, where they were only as good as what they could produce, where they were only used and taken advantage of and abused. If you want to read how bad it was, open your Bible to the beginning of the book of Exodus. And the summary of that story is they started growing in number and the Egyptians got scared. So what did they do? The Pharaoh said, kill all the boys under two. You know, that is the, the definition of abuse. I'm scared of you, and instead of taking care of those who can't, I'm going to take advantage of you for my good, because they could rise up and beat me up, you know? And it's a story of the Egyptians taking advantage of the people. You know, we have a phrase that we use in our culture, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I don't think we're too far removed. That's an extreme example, clearly, with the Egyptians from taking advantage of people when God calls our community to care for people. There's a historian... Henry Adams, I love this phrase. He was talking about the influence of power and the effect the increased power has on the individual. And he says, and I quote, as you increase in power, it's a sort of tumor that ends by killing the victim's sympathies. There's a study at the University of Berkeley. And this guy studied, this psychologist studied for two decades, the effect of increased power on individuals. And after two decades, he said he found in his study that those that had increased authority and power acted as if they'd suffered a traumatic brain injury, becoming more impulsive, less risk aware, less, less risk aware and crucially less adept at seeing things from others' point of view. The point he's making there is an increase in authority and power often comes at the cost of empathy for others. That the more that we have and the more power we have, the more we're likely to take advantage of other people. 
And I've seen it. I can give you story after story of when I've worked in nonprofits and food banks in Chicago that I saw people that didn't have take care of better than the people that did. But I, mean, I can just go to, to this last six months in Dallas. I live in Dallas and the tornado came through and I was watching the Cowboy game, so I had no idea I almost died. And I, um, I remember driving through some of the homes of the people that lost their homes. And these are multi-million dollar homes. At first, I didn't really feel very badly for them, you know? I was like, oh, live in the beach house somewhere, you know? But when you dive down, you realize that there's no good way, no matter how much money you have, to lose your house. And your kids still have to go to school. And it's going to be a year before it's rebuilt. And what do they do? And do they see their friends? I mean, it's just a lot of really hard questions that regardless of income level hurt you. And I read an article in the Dallas Morning News about how what people in Dallas started to do is they'd pull their houses off the market that were for sale. Some of these houses had been on the market for months and months because they knew there's a housing shortage and so they'd pull their house off the market and they'd put it back on the market as a rental for 10 and 15 to $20,000 a month because they could, right? This is in Dallas. I have to go no farther than look at Amazon this week. I read an article on CNN on Wednesday that basically talked about the increase in prices of medical-grade masks, Right? So for example, on Amazon a month ago, there was this 10-pack of the N95 respirators, which is what people are buying. It sold, the 10-pack sold for $18.20. This week, a 10-pack was $99.99, you know? This week, an, a 30-pack went for $200. I think oftentimes we default to taking advantage of people when we're called to taking care of them. And we're talking housing and health here. We're not talking like, I really want to fly first class, but it's expensive, you know? We're talking the places and spaces that Jesus says step into and meet people because they have needs like food. And so what we see as we look through the scriptures and see what compassion looks like is it absolutely looks like taking care of people instead of taking advantage of them. Our end good is the good of others in a lot of ways. He ends that section by saying this in verse 14, and it kind of encapsulates the whole idea. You must not curse a deaf person or put a stumbling block in front of a blind person. That seems really weird, unless you know the context. So when he says you must not curse a deaf person, really what that word means, that word in the Hebrew means to make light of or to slight. It occurs about 130 times in the Old Testament, and it's semantically opposite to the root word of to make heavy, right? So when it says curse, there literally means to make light of, and it's semantically opposite, meaning the opposite word is to make heavy of. And in the Hebrew, to give something honor is to give weight to something. To give something honor is to say that my life will more revolve around you. You have more of a pull on all the things that I'm responsible for, whether it be my family or my time or my job or my money. That's how I give you honor is by making your weight in my life more. And so he says, don't curse a deaf person or put things in front of a blind person. What they're saying is, don't show people less weight when they need help. So we talk about what compassion looks like. He's saying it means to give opportunity, and I think he's saying it means to give honor to people when you don't feel like you have to, when you don't feel like maybe they've earned it, when you feel like you can take their honor and rob them of it. So he says don't steal, and don't lie, and don't rob, and don't take what's theirs, because Jesus is creating a community that doesn't do that. Jesus is creating a community that says, I'm going to step into those moments and show you a better way of compassion. Because this isn't how it's supposed to be. 
So the saying in Leviticus 19 to do the same way, be different as a people, act out of compassion. And he goes on to say in verse 15, you must not deal unjustly in judgment. You must neither show partiality to the poor nor honor the rich. You must judge your fellow citizen fairly. Verse 16, don't go about as a slander among your people. You must not stand idly by where your neighbor's life is at stake. And so he starts by saying, you need to give opportunity. That's where compassion lies. You need to give honor. That's what compassion looks like. And finally, in every single way, you need to give dignity to people because that's what compassion's all about. Because fundamentally, and this is kind of where it goes back to at the end of the day, we show compassion not because somebody's earned it, but because they're made, people are made in the image of God, and that's worth fighting for and protecting. So these are my people. And whether they have value in your eyes or not doesn't negate the fact that they are carrying around the very image of God. It reminds us, it fundamentally reminds us when he says that you must not judge people based on what you see and judge people based on how God made them. What he says there is that you are not valued by what you contribute. You're valued by how you're made by your creator. We talked about Sabbath a little bit about a month ago, right? Sabbath is a personal reflection on that for us. He reminds me as I stop once a week, hopefully as I learn to stop in the middle of my week, as I press pause, it reminds me that God's love for me doesn't change because I wasn't productive today. (laughs) In a culture that says I am what I'm worth, what I produce or I've made or built or my net worth. So he says, don't, don't, don't unjustly judge people or show partiality to the poor or to the rich because fundamentally it's not about what you see or what they contribute. It's about how they're made in the image of God. He's saying give the fundamental dignity that comes with how they're made and who they're created to be. And again, that was revolutionary in that culture. In two week, three weeks, we're gonna talk about the value of people in Leviticus and, and there's a passage in Leviticus we're going to deal with where it really talks about, like, hey, if you're a healthy man, you're worth this much if you're sold. If you're a woman, you're worth far less. If you're a kid, you're worth far less. And we've got to deal with that passage because that's a tough one. So he's saying here that you don't value people based on what they're worth monetarily or what they can produce. You don't judge them based on that. You give the dignity that they have because God gave them dignity in the first place that transcends socioeconomic class and ethnicity, nationality, transcends those things. I read a story this week about a post-World War II kind of internment camp, if you will. Um, it was in China, and there was about 450 people there. It comes from a book called Shanting Compound, The Story of Men and Women Under Pressure. And it talked about how there was about 1,450 people at this compound, and roughly 200-ish uh, were American. And they were there for a little while, and over time, the conditions got worse and worse and worse. And it said, and I'll quote this, it said, as time went on, shortages grew worse and rations, were, rations excuse me, diminished. The result was a great concern for the future. Also, winters were bitterly cold, and as clothing wore out, there was a concern about worn clothing as well. On a bitterly cold January day, the gates to the camp opened and led in donkey carts loaded with care packages from the American Red Cross. Each care package was three feet long, a foot wide, and 18 inches high. And here's what the care package included. Cigarettes, butter, spam, (laughs) different world, cheese, chocolate, sugar, coffee, and dried fruit. That sounds really great. 
problem was, and the author goes on to talk about it, there were 1,550 care packages, 1,450 people, 200 Americans, and the Americans said, this is from the American Red Cross, we're going to take it all and have seven apiece, <laughs> and not share with other people. No, that's not a beaming example of good in our history, but the point there is simply that what they're saying, and in this culture is radical, and sometimes in ours, is that we give dignity to people because God made them, not because of where they're born, whether they're American or Chinese or Mexican, or we're called to show compassion to people because they bear the image of God. That's hard. That's hard because it's so much easier to take advantage and take what we feel is rightfully ours. That's what the Bible means by social justice. Ideally, justice is blind. That's why if you even look at the way our country was founded, Lady Justice on our courthouses has her eyes covered. That's why the U.S. Supreme Court building has inscribed the words equal justice under law. Justice means there's one law for everyone, not different rules for different kinds of people based on how much money they have or where they're from. It's about dignity. It's for the value of people because we understand God. And then he goes on in verse 16 and he says, you will not stand idly by when your neighbor's life is at stake. He broadens the city of dignity out and said, it's not just something that you deal with when it deals with you. It's something that you fight for when you see non-dignity other places. And so he says that it's not enough just for you to defend dignity when it lands on your doorstep, but you must not stand idly by when your neighbor's life is at stake. Compassion is an active process we engage in as the people of God. There's a couple different ways we can talk about this. Um, We can talk about kind of the ways that we fall short as a church, but what I want to do is uh, kind of give you four things, three in the last week or two that I've read, but the church being really great, because I'd much rather share and celebrate the moments when I can raise the Jesus flag and wave it high and be like, those are my people, you know, (laughs) the times that, that I'm a little discouraged by our tribe. And I think that the church is called to be different in this way, to show compassion on people because we bear the image of God, to give dignity of life to individuals. So I'm going to give you four examples of this. One is just my favorite one of the church in history, and then three that I read this week. The first one is from about 250 AD. And I bring this up just because of all the coronavirus scare stuff, and, you know, you read and you watch, and however you feel about that is fine, but diseases are hard, you know? And in 250 AD, there was a plague called the Plague of Cyprian. And it's really interesting because most of the sources I have on this were non-Jesus followers. They're just historians. And regardless of what you think about the coronavirus, Cyprian was worse. About 5,000 people a day, a day died in Rome, right? It killed hundreds of thousands and millions of of people. And what would happen in the plague of Cyprian is you'd read firsthand accounts. They would just line bodies on the sides of roads because you didn't know what to do with them. And if you were sick, if you were sick, and maybe you're almost about to die or you're sick in general, they would put you in the mass with all the other ones that had already died and you would just wait there to die. It was a horrible thing. And people would flee cities because they didn't know how viruses spread. They just knew that if I'm around others, I'd get it. And so they'd run away from big cities. You know who didn't run away? Christians. There are firsthand accounts I could read of historians that say what's amazing is the Christians ran into the, they ran into the cities knowing full well that they were going to share in the same fate of the people they were trying to serve. Compassion cost them their life there. It's a beautiful principle of what happens when we see the dignity and worth of others. It causes us to fight for the dignity of others, even if it doesn't necessarily affect us firsthand. I think this week I was reading about some friends of mine adopted a kid last week. I was just reading about adoption a little bit. Did you know that as a church, there's about 150, probably a little more than that now, million orphans worldwide? And practicing Christians are more than twice as likely to adopt than the general population. 
Christians have built a reputation for many things that we're against, for sure, but adoption and foster care are emerging as a cause of what we're for. 2% of all Americans have adopted. It rises to 5% among practicing Christians because we feel strongly about helping people when they face injustice. It's a beautiful moment for the church. I think this Christmas, um, a few months back actually, I was at a concert at a church in Dallas, and it was a really great concert, really big church, and they work with the organization that we've done some work with called Compassion International. If you don't know what Compassion International does, they just give you a postcard of a kid for like 12 bucks a month that you feed <laughs> and you put through school. And so you get a kid from age like five or whenever you adopt them to when they're out of school, 17, 18 years old, and you can write back and forth. It's a really great organization. And this church said that evening, they said, we have one goal. We are going to take all the cards for all the kids in El Salvador and end it tonight, right? Really, and I think they did it. Really beautiful job saying, we're going to be the church. And I, I'm not going to see these people. I might not ever meet these people, but, but I'm going to step into their injustice and fight for their dignity because God. Lastly, I think what's really cool is, I read it this week, somebody sent it to me. There's a church in Ohio named <coughs> Crossroads. And so we take credit for this one. They, um, this week, they just bought up $46 million worth of medical debt and then forgave it all, <laughs> you know? So like people in the tri-state area around Ohio, they just called and said, you don't know anything else anymore, God is good. Because it says when you see people not being treated with dignity, step in and don't stand idly by when your neighbor's life is at stake. And when we talk about compassion, some of the dignity of life. One commentator said this, says this chapter stresses the interactive connection between the responsibility to one's fellow man and religious piety, the two dimensions of life that were never meant to be separated. And he ends this phrase in verse 18 by saying, this is what it adds up to. You must love your neighbor as yourself. Coming this morning, if we did a poll, and I said, who first said this phrase, love your neighbor as yourself, I'm guessing about 92% would look at me and say the answer you're supposed to say on Sunday mornings, Jesus, right? Not the first one to say it. Leviticus 19.18. When Jesus is asked in context this question in verse 10, it's really a fascinating section of scripture. He has some religious leaders of the day around him, and they, they corner Jesus, and they say, give me, trying to trick him, give me the best commandment. Pick your favorite son out of all the commandments, them believing they're all the same. And he says to these Pharisees, loving God with everything you got is the best commandment there is. And he said the second one when they asked, he said the second one is to love your neighbor as yourself, quoting the law in Leviticus 19.18. But what follows there is amazing. If you keep reading, because they're Jewish and they need a little more definition than just neighbor that is broad, they said, okay, who's my neighbor? And that question really carries with it, like, who am I allowed not to love? <laughs> not to show compassion to? Like, who am I out pitches? And he says, let me tell you a story. I'm sure you know this one. So there's a man. He's a Jewish man, like you. And he got beat up badly, within an inch of his life. He was on a road. And a priest a man that's supposed to teach the law, to know the law, a priest walks down the road, sees this man beat up within an inch of his life, and he crosses the other side and keeps walking because he was busy. This is a Levite, book of Leviticus, a book about the people that worked in the temple but necessarily weren't priests, and he says, you have a Levite, a man of God, that's walking down the street, sees one of your people, one of your people beat up within an inch of his life, crosses the street, keeps walking. He said, then there's a Samaritan, right? And the Samaritan if in the first century Jewish world that Jesus was talking about was somebody that you were supposed to hate and it was okay to if you were a Jew. 
Samaritans were half-breeds in the Jewish mindset. They literally were a tribe of people that came about because the Jewish people made kids with the Assyrian captors when they were taken captive by Assyria in 700 or 800 BC. So real Jews, full-blooded Jews, hated Samaritans because they saw them as compromises to who they were. So much so that in Jesus' day, there were Jews that literally didn't walk through Samaria. If they had to travel somewhere, they'd walk around the country because they didn't want to walk in the land of these half-breed dirty people. A Samaritan walks by a Jewish man that's beat up. All the implications being like, this guy should probably kick him good and keep going, you know? And Jesus says he picked him up, he cleaned him up, he spent his money to get him healthy. He said, that's your neighbor. (laughs) Everybody. Because they understand the dignity of life. And so he's making a case for compassion in Leviticus 19. And he says, this is what it looks like. It looks like giving opportunity. It looks like giving honor. And it looks like giving dignity when you don't feel like you should. And here's the why behind it all. It looks like love because, and he says this four times, I think, in our passage, I am the Lord. <laughs> and, and he ends it like that after each section. He says, don't pick up the grapes that you dropped. Why? Because I'm the Lord. You're like, what, what? do you need grapes, you know? He says, hey, don't. Don't lie or rob people. Why? Because I am the Lord. He says, don't slander people and, and fight for their dignity and don't, don't, don't judge them because of what they look like or what they bring to the table. Why? Because I am the Lord. And he says, this one thing, this one standard, your standard for compassion isn't set by your neighbors, isn't set by your mood, isn't set by how much you have. Your standard for compassion is set by me. Because the ultimate standard of compassion, like I said, it's a band-aid book, is found throughout what he did in the person of Jesus. In Deuteronomy, he's giving this law again, because it's the law retold. And he says this in verse 22 of chapter 24. When you, the gleaning again, gather the grapes of your vineyard, you must not do it a second time. They should go to the resident foreigner, orphan, and widow. Verse 22, remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I'm commanding you to do all this. And here's the why. Why we show compassion to others is because we're all poor compared to God. (laughs) Every one of us. We all need physically, spiritually, emotionally. We all need compassion. And when we show compassion, when we give opportunity and when we give honor and when we give dignity to those people that oftentimes are overlooked or not provided for, when we do that, we paint a picture of a God who has done that for us. These are my people that live in a world of brokenness, of not what I created, but I'm working on to restore. This is the story of Leviticus. It's a Band-Aid book. He's saying this is what compassion looks like in the in-betweens right now, in the mission meals and the poverty lines and those people that don't have enough provision. It's not what I wanted, but it's what is. And so be the church and show them a picture of something else. Show them a God who is compassionate. And as you know me and as you dive into the compassion I've given you, Might that spill over (laughs) to opportunity and honor and dignity for everybody else? Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful that you're a God of compassion. I'm thankful that you called your people in Leviticus in a little different ways than you probably called us. But in Leviticus and the church today to be a people of compassion, my prayer is that as we understand how compassionate God is, it motivates our compassion towards others. That as we have conversations about how compassionate we are as a people, as a family, as a church, that it's motivated by our ability to to give opportunity, honor, and dignity to those people, to all people. Because that's what you've done to us. As we finish and we 
worship again and sing some songs about your goodness and your ability to rescue us. Give us a joy for the compassion that you've shown us so that we might joyfully show compassion to others because you are the Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen.